who should be leading the local church that's on the corner of Church Street and 2nd Avenue in any given city? The pastor? The deacon board? The elder board? A certain group of select committees? Uh, the congregation? Some form of hierarchy, maybe bishops or cardinals or the pope? Maybe the pastor's wife. If you can imagine who might be leading a church, it's probably been done or is being done. But the real question is, what does the New Testament say about church leadership? I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the passage that we read a few moments ago in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Over 40 years ago, I lived in New York State where I was reared, and my wife and I became believers. And we were in a small free Methodist church. Um, the pastor there, he was, a, he was a really good man. He, he loved the Lord, he loved people, and he's in heaven today. No doubt in my mind. Um, but there, there were some problems in the church. What happened was, after I had probably been saved about eight months or so, um, he saw that I was very interested. I was 23 years old. He saw I was very interested in the, uh, in the scriptures and in ministering and such, and so he made my wife and I, uh, new converts, leaders of the youth group. Uh, you know, it was rough, but that's what he did. And then he put out a challenge to uh, start home Bible studies as an outreach for evangelism and, and such. And he wanted to start four new Bible studies. And uh, so I said, hey, I can do that. So I volunteered. And again, I've been saved about nine months. And he said, yeah, that's great. I said, what do I do? He said, just study the Bible. That was my training, study the Bible. So I went down to the bookstore and I... Christian bookstore and I pulled the book off the shelf I said this looks good fortunately it was a book by Warren Wearsby be mature study on James and so we started a Bible study and there were four of us that first week Elaine and me and uh, a widow an elderly widow in in her um, middle-aged daughter and the Lord blessed our Bible study. Um, we saw people saved, and we saw people that were away from the Lord come back to the Lord. And in our little two-bedroom apartment, we went from four people to well over 30 people coming every Tuesday night. And so one day, the pastor called up. Um, should I tell her the details? I'll tell you the details. She won't mind. So my wife and I used to fight. <laughs> we get along pretty well now. But anyway, just 
I'm not usually quite this personal with my stories, but, but anyway, um, we were having a fight, and the phone rang. And my wife has this tremendous ability for a phone voice, right? She's yelling at me, right? And she's, hello. <laughs> and, and it was the pastor. And I'm, I'm standing there, you know, snorting and growling and listening. And, and she's like, oh, okay, sure, yeah. And I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Well, he had called her up, and he said, he said, hey, I just want you to know I'm changing things up for the Bible study. He, he didn't talk to me, he talked to her. I was leading the Bible study, right? And he said, but, he said, so this is what we're going to do. He said, you're going to start leading the Bible study instead of Doug. And we're going to split the Bible study into four groups. And, and he had chosen this other woman to lead another one. And he also said, well, there's this guy that he doesn't come to church very regularly, but I think if we could get him into leading a Bible study, he'd come more often. So he was going to lead another one, and she gets off the phone, and guess what I'm going to do? <laughs> and I, I said, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> that was the beginning of the end for us in the Free Methodist Church. But, but I, I bring all, all that up to, to just, you know, Obviously, we're talking about Bible study leaders, but, you know, he, he violated some things about leadership, right? First of all, he had me in there as a new convert, which was not a good idea. It's not scriptural, really. I was not prepared to do so. Um, and not, then he, he, he's bringing in a guy who, who hardly even comes to church, thinking, well, that'll help him really mature if he can lead a Bible study. And he's appointing two women to, to lead Bible studies over, you know, men in the, in the church as well. And, you know, I just bring all that up to, to point out that the fact that the New Testament gives us specific guidance in, in who should be leading the local church. Um, and, and as we continue our study here on, on biblical church leadership, we're going to look at this idea of um, prospective elders. What are the qualifications? And I, I'd like to encourage you this morning to, to look at this message from, from two perspectives. First of all, as we move toward adopting this polity of, of a, a plurality of elders, understand that any man in our church who would become an elder um, must be evaluated by the scriptural qualifications that we'll be looking at today. But also understand that every one of us here today as, as believers, every one of us should strive to obtain and to mature in the spiritual qualities that pertain to Christian character and conduct that we'll see in our study today. Because these qualities are presented to us throughout the New Testament. They're given in the form of commands. They're given in, in, in the form of, of exhortations. That this is how all of us as Christians should live. It's not just the elders of the church who are to be spiritually mature. That's what we're all looking for as individuals. And as Ephesians 4 tells us, as a local body of believers as a whole. Striving for that maturity. So as we get into this message and, and look at these character qualifications, don't, don't look at them as just pertaining to elders. No, but 
also the qualities that you should seek to adorn your life with as well. So we're in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, and we'll be referring to to Titus chapter 1 as well. And the first thing we need to note about qualifications for elders is that a prospective elder must aspire to the position. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 1, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So we see this word here. It's a Greek word translated office of overseer. It's the word episkopa, which is translated um, this way. And it's related to the word for overseer, which we've already looked at, episkopos. So, So this word refers to holding a position an office of overseer is is a really good translation an overseer or an elder is a man who holds an office he he's in the position of overseeing and shepherding and as we've seen in previous studies he, he this this office of overseer is the one who is an elder he's he's an overseer he's a pastor those words are used synonymously And Paul says here that the one who aspires to the office of overseer. So the word literally aspire, it literally means someone, it means to stretch oneself. But figuratively, it refers to aspiring towards something. I'm strongly desiring something. In fact, the word is only used three times in the New Testament. And and it always conveys a a sense of of desire based upon aspirations. Uh, It's used here in 1 Timothy 3.1. 1 1 Timothy 6.10 says it. That that refers, as translated in the ESV, craving. Those who are craving for money. And in Hebrews 11.16, speaking of the heroes of the faith, translated desire. They desired a better country. So the first thing we see here is there there must be a desire upon the part of a man to be an elder. But it's not simply human desire. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in a man's life to to set him apart as a man whom he has gifted and called for this type of work. A man who will faithfully care for God's most prized possession, the church which Christ purchased with his own blood. We referred to this verse previously, Acts 20, 28, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. And note what he says. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So it's not just a man's desire. It's not just that he aspires to be an elder, but it's it's a work of the Holy Spirit in that man's life. Uh, You you see this again in Ephesians 4, right? Where Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds. There's that word that is a synonym for an elder, for an overseer. The shepherds and teachers. And so Christ gave these gifts to the church. So so an elder, an overseer, a pastor, he's someone who has been gifted by the Holy Spirit, called by the Holy Spirit, to minister in this capacity 
in a local church. So, immediately we see here, first, a, a prospective elder must aspire to that position. And his desire that he has must be coupled with the working of the Holy Spirit in his heart and in his mind to convict him that God has called him to be, this, to be an elder. And the second thing we see here is that a prospective elder must embrace the nature of the position. Here in 1 Timothy 3, 1, Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of oversire, he desires a noble task. That word translated task is, is most often translated work. The word means work or labor. So being an elder is not simply holding a position in the church. Just like you're just sitting on this board and that's a, you got this position. No, it's work. It's work. It's, it's being active, actively involved in, in overseeing and shepherding other believers. It's a work that takes time and energy. And any man who aspires to be an elder has to embrace the fact that the nature of being an elder is work. And, and guess what? It's like most work. Uh, generally, it's not all that glamorous. Okay? And it's not always enjoyable. Sometimes it's difficult. It's work. All of us are old enough to know what work is. We've experienced it. We, that, that's, what, that's what he's saying here. It's a work. But he calls it a noble work. And that word is usually translated good. About 70% of the time in the New Testament. It's used Many, many times in the New Testament, about 70% of them, it's translated as good. And, and of course, the context of, of the, where that word is used will determine its precise meaning. So what does Paul mean here when he says that being an elder is a noble task or a, a good work? Well, it's noble because it's the work of God in caring for and nurturing his people. It's the work of God taking care of his, God's flock, which he has purchased with his own blood. So, so the nature of being an elder is work. And, and you'll note also in Titus, where Paul gives this other list of qualifications, he, he says it's being an, a, a steward. It's a stewardship. Titus 1.7, for an overseer as God's steward, and then he continues giving this list of qualifications. So being an elder is a stewardship. It's a, stu a steward, of course, is a manager of something that belongs to another. And, and what the elder is doing is he's simply managing the household of God. He's not overseeing or shepherding people that belong to him. He is not their master. He is not their Lord. That's why Peter says, you know, when you're doing this overseeing... Don't lord it over people. No. Their Lord is Christ. The same as the overseer, the elder's Lord, is Christ. And the elder is simply a steward, a manager over God's people whom God has entrusted to him. 
So before a man should be considered to be a prospective elder in a local church, he must first of all aspire to be an elder, having the accompanying conviction of the Holy Spirit that God has called him to do this work. And second, he needs to understand that being an elder is work that involves managing, not lording it over God's people, the church. And these two elements are really prerequisite to becoming an elder. If somebody doesn't have the desire, if a man doesn't have the desire, and he doesn't sense in his own heart that God has called him to do this, and if he doesn't understand the nature of the task at hand, then he shouldn't be an elder. So these are just kind of givens. But, but these two elements alone don't qualify a man to be elder. Because the man must see, meet certain specific spiritual qualifications. And Paul gives us these two lists of what these qualifications are to be an elder in his letters to Timothy and Titus. Both Timothy, Timothy and Titus were, they were special servants of God. I, I, I like to call them the apostles' assistants. They, they weren't your typical elders. They weren't apostles, but they were, you know, more than just elders. And both of these men, Timothy in Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete, they were put in charge in these locations to ordain elders. And so Paul wants to make sure that they understand what the spiritual qualifications for these elders are. And these two lists, they, they overlap considerably. And as we go through these lists this, this morning, we'll, we'll see that almost all of them pertain to the spiritual maturity of a man. The Christian character and conduct of a man. And they really have little to do with his natural abilities. In fact, a prospective elder in these qualifications that he needs to meet for being a position can really be put into these three broad categories. His, his domestic, his family life, his personal character and conduct, and his doctrinal integrity. So before we go through this list, let's just look over at Titus and, and let's read. We've already read uh, 1 Timothy 3. Let's just read here in Titus the list that, that um, Paul gives to Titus. In Titus chapter 1 and beginning in verse 5. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violently or greedy for gain, violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So I thought about different ways to go through these lists and we could have organized them under domestic life, personal character and conduct and doctrinal integrity. Um, but I decided to just go straight down through the list in, in 1 Timothy and then at the end we'll add in the ones from Titus. So let's just look at this list. We're not going to focus on any one of them for very long, um, but 
hopefully just get a, a, a good understanding of, of what the general thought is here. And the first thing that he says in, in 1 Timothy 3 is that the man must be above reproach. And this is repeated in, in Titus in chapter 1, verse 6. Um, above reproach in 1 Timothy 3, 2, the word literally means it, he cannot be rightly criticized. It's a different Greek word in, in Titus, translated above reproach. Some translations it's translated blameless. And it means he cannot be rightly accused. So really what we're looking at here is we're looking for a man who, who is developing toward maturity. His, his life is under control. The Spirit's influence is evident in this man's life. So he has an untarnished reputation. And this is really the single overarching qualification and all the rest of the, the qualifications are really just explanatory or, or developing this idea of what it means to be above reproach. What does what above reproach look like? Well, it looks like what he lays out here following these qualifi- this qualification of above reproach. He, he's a leader who cannot be accused of anything sinful. And, and, and the rest of these just amplify this. So an elder must be above reproach in his marital life, societal life, his, his family life, his business life, and his spiritual life. And we'll see all this play out here in, the, in these next verses. The next thing he says is a husband of one wife. Um, it says the same thing in Titus. Literally, a one woman man. Well, some argue, well, that means one woman at a time. But the problem with that is, 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 is polygamy was, was uncommon in that day. And it was actually abhorrent. It wasn't accepted as a social norm, polygamy. So it's, it's pretty obvious that Paul's not talking about he can't be a polygamist. Um. Does he mean, well, he can't be remarried after his first wife dies? Because then he would have another wife, even though he had one before. So he's really not the husband of one wife. He's not a one. Is that what it means? Uh, Very, very unlikely. Probably not. Um, Does it mean he can't be remarried after divorce? Well, this is the common accepted position. I, I, I believe it does include that. Many people take this, that if a man is divorced and remarried, then he is not qualified to be an elder. But really, what the, the, the primary meaning here is, it's not simply that he's not divorced and remarried, um, though I, I think that is true, but... But the main purpose of, of what he's saying here is, is that he's faithful to his wife. He's a one-woman man. He's not an adulterer. He, he, he's not someone who is, is giving attention to other women. His single-mindedness is devoted to his wife. She is the woman in his life. She is the woman for him. He is a one-woman man. He's not flirtatious. He's devoted to his wife. 
And that's the main thrust of, of this idea of a one-woman man. Um, he's also to be sober-minded. Um, the word literally can mean not intoxicated. But more often it has to do with being um, restrained in his thinking, in his actions, in his words. Um, self-controlled in verse 2 and also in verse 8 of Titus. Um, self-controlled is speaking of, of sober, sensible judgment. Um, being moderate in one's opinion or passion. In other words, he, he's, he's, not, he's not out of control. He's not saying what's ever on his mind. He's not, he's not just, you know, not only in his speech, but in his actions, just not being able to keep himself under control. It's the same word that, that's used there as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So again, it's the mark of the Spirit of God at work in his life. This is, this is one of the manifestations of the Spirit. Self-control. He's respectable. Um, and that just means, as you might think, worthy of respect. Worthy of honor. He's hospitable. Literally, he loves strangers, is what the word literally means. In other words, he's, he's welcoming. He's welcoming to people. And, and it can even go as far as the point of, of being entertaining. In that you entertain strangers, entertain other people in one's home. Um, also, able to teach. And we'll... We'll go, uh, we'll go into more of this in another message when we talk about the um, responsibilities of, of an elder. But he's able to teach. Um, now, in Titus, in verse 9 of chapter 1, Paul goes into a little more detail here. He, he says that he is to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So an elder, this is one of the qualifications of an elder, he, 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 he needs to know the word of God well enough that he is able to instruct others and that he has the ability to instruct others. And again, we'll go into this in more detail later on. That doesn't necessarily mean that, that he's, he's got the, that he has the gift of teaching that Paul mentions in, in spiritual gifts. It doesn't necessarily mean he has the gift to be able to stand up and, and preach a message to a congregation. But he's got to be able to, he's got to have a firm grasp on the word of God so he can instruct others. And as he says in Titus, so that he can refute those who have false doctrine um, he calls it the trustworthy word in verse 9 of Titus 1 the, the word is, is reliable it's trustworthy why because it's the word of God it's the word of God it's from the God who cannot lie as he says in Titus 1 2 it, it's the word that was as taught he says there in verse 9 it's, it's according to the apostolic teaching. And, and what he's saying here, he's referring to the, the doctrine, the, the, the faith that was believed here even in the early church. He, he uses this, uh, Paul uses this 
um, phraseology in Romans 6, 17 and chapter 16 and verse 17. It's, it's the identifiable, identifiable body of instruction that was accepted by the church, that was brought by the apostles. And, and whoever's going to be an elder is going to need to have a handle on the word of God so that they can instruct others, even if it's in a small group or in a one-on-one basis, they can instruct others and encourage them with their sound teaching and even refute those who oppose it. So this is another qualification. Um, The next one is not a drunkard. Um, It... It, can't, it means not an abuser of alcohol, but also carries with it the idea of temperance and moderation. Again, brought up in Titus. And then he says, not violent, um, not physically abusive. Rather than leading by force, he, he leads by example. And again, you see this in, in verse 7 in Titus 1. And then Paul adds a gentle in, in um, the Timothy passage. Um, which is just the opposite of violent. He's not violent, but he's gentle in how he deals with people. Um, Not quarrelsome, verse 5. Not quarrelsome. He's not, you know, he's he's not someone who is going to just constantly be looking for an argument or having to win an argument, having to have the last word. I mean... Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Um, Paul writes in Titus, not greedy for gain. And really the idea there is in some translations it comes out, not greedy for dishonest gain. Of course, these, these things go together. If it, It's not only that he shouldn't be greedy for dishonest gain, which would show that he idolizes money. He's willing to, to compromise truth to be deceitful or or whatever in order to gain money, to gain it dishonestly. Um, But not only that, but he's not a lover of money. That's not not something he he lives for. That's not something that he, he has this great desire for that he spends his life pursuing. He goes on and he starts talking about the, the family responsibilities. He says he manages his own household well. Um, in verse 7 of Titus 1, just read this again. He speaks of this. He says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Um, so, so what he's talking, back, back up to, uh, I'm sorry, back up to verse 6. That should be verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Paul uses this above reproach for the second time in this passage in Titus. And he ties it in the second time specifically with this elder managing his own household well. He needs to be above reproach in this area. He needs to be blameless in this area that he can't be accused in this area um, because he's God's steward 
as a manager of God's household. And, and therefore, the test for him is, is he God's steward? Is he being a faithful steward? And is he above reproach in his managing of his own household? Um, and the next thing he ties in is the children, right? With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And, and he, Paul, again, gives further instruction. And, and it's probably because he's writing to a Titus on the island of Crete. Um, some of you were here when we studied through Titus a couple of years back. You know, the Cretans weren't exactly known for their morality and their good behavior. It was a terrible society, terrible culture. And, and so, so Paul here is emphasizing, look, you know, if someone's going to be an elder, he needs to have his household in order. He needs to be, to, to make sure that his children are submissive. They're, they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. They're under control. Um, it says that they're believers. That word could possibly be translated, they're trustworthy. In other words, the children must be, they, they must not be able to be accused of outrageous behavior that would bring public disrepute upon their father as an elder and on the church as well. And the term children here is, is it's a general term, but it usually refers to children who are still in the home under the authority of the father. So this is a key aspect of, of being an elder. If he can't manage his own house, how, if he can't oversee his own household, how is he going to take part in overseeing the church of God? That's Paul's argument. Um, not a recent convert. We know what that means. Um, how long does somebody need to be saved before they can be an elder? Well, I mean, that's not really the question, right? Um, it, it takes time to develop spiritual maturity. And, and so, you know, it's not, going to be the, it's not going to be a certain amount of time. You know, people are different. They mature at different um, rates. And uh, so, not a recent convert. That's, I think it's just pretty obvious. Well thought of by outsiders. Um, you know, you're not going to make someone an elder where outside the four walls of the church, you know, everybody knows he's a rascal. You know, you don't, you, don't, you don't want that kind of person. That's not good. That's a qualification. And then we, we get over to Titus for these last few. Um, not arrogant. The word is self-willed is what it means. Self-willed. Um, having a, a self-loving spirit which seeks to gratify one's own desires in arrogant disregard for others, self-willed, uh, not quick-tempered, um, not inclined to anger. You know, if, if somebody has a problem controlling their anger, they can't control their anger, and they and they're blowing up and losing their cool. And no, you you know, until that man gets his anger under control and can control his anger, he's not qualified to be an elder. It's a disqualification. Um, a lover of good. You know, again, what's he talking about? Well, 
Maybe, probably he's talking about good things, good people, as opposed to evil, as opposed to that which is, is not good. Um, and then these last three kind of go together. Um, they're translated upright, holy, and disciplined. And, and this um, upright is, is really, it means they're, they're just in dealing with other people. They're just, they're, they're righteous in their dealings with other people. The next one, discipline, it means they're, they're next one, holy, excuse me, is, it means they're devout toward God, pure, unpolluted, free from the stain of sin. And the last one is they're, they're disciplined. Um, they're, they, they have a duty to themselves and they understand that duty to themselves. So these last three that, that Paul gives to, to Titus deal with their relationship with other people. They're just in their dealings with other people. Their relationship with God. They're devout toward God. They're, they're pure in, in their own hearts. They maintain a, a right relationship with God. Confess sin. Seeking to honor him with their lives. And disciplined. Understanding the duty that they have to themselves. Um, one writer says, a disciplined man refrains from all that is unlawful and harmful. You know, which goes back to what, what Paul writes, you know, in one of his epistles where he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. Just, just because something's not morally wrong doesn't mean you should do it. Just because you can do something and not be sinning against God or others doesn't mean you should. It, it, it may not be the best choice for you, for your wife, for, for your children, for other believers. Um, and of course the scripture deals with that a lot. But disciplined. Understanding and fulfilling the duty to yourself. You know what you should do, and you're seeking to do it. So, so let me just talk to you a couple minutes and, and give you some scenarios here. Um, I want to mention to you six men, fictitious men, who all have a desire to be an elder. They all sense within their own spirit that the Holy Spirit is leading them to be an elder. And they all have certain good qualities and they show promise that they could be qualified and become effective elders in a local church. So here's Robert. And his wife complains that Robert is a different man in the home than he is in the church. He doesn't hear he doesn't lead her or their children spiritually. He's only concerned about himself, his job, and his enjoyment of playing in and watching sports. Josh. He seems to have a good marriage from what can be seen by others, but he has young teenagers who are rebellious. They fight him about going to church, and they're all infatuated with the things of the world. And he has no control over them. Ben. Ben's married to a lovely, supporting, submissive wife. His children are well-behaved, but Ben is always right. 
He's never wrong. He will never admit fault. In fact, he's arrogant. He's self-willed. He's, his way is not only the best way, it's the only way. And then there's Gary. Overall, Gary is a good Christian man. His family's in order. He's faithful to the church. He's knowledgeable of the scriptures. But he can't control his temper. He gets angry with his wife, with his children. He gets angry with his co-workers. And at times, even with other brothers in the church. The problem has been addressed by his wife and by church leadership. And he refuses to get his anger under control. And then there's James. And James has a tremendous desire to be an elder. He believes that one day he, he's going to be in a full-time pastor position. He loves to study God's word, and he's actually a good teacher of the Bible. But he's undisciplined. He takes on responsibilities at the church, and he doesn't fulfill them. Or he's so busy with other things that they get put on the bottom of the priority list, and he's just not dependable. And then there's Gabriel. And he loves the Lord and he serves him faithfully. He's in his mid-30s and he's devoted to the study of the word. He's very busy in the church and he's faithful to fulfill all of the obligations that he volunteers for. And he shows a, a, a promising ability to teach the word. And he has a wonderful family. But he's only been a believer for 12 months. I mean, you know, we could make up these scenarios and go on and on and on with other examples of men who desire to be an elder. But none of these that we mentioned here are qualified to be elders, at least at this time in their lives. They, they need to, some of them just need to grow up, quite frankly. Some of them need to just grow up. But they all need to, to grow in specific areas of their lives spiritually and that takes time but we need to understand that it takes more than time it doesn't just take time alone becoming a, a spiritually qualified elder has similarities to becoming qualified in anything else it takes not only time but it takes discipline determination and sacrifice it doesn't matter if you're talking about a professional athlete, a skilled attorney, a master house builder, a successful businessman. It takes hard to be successful at any kind of work. You know that. Everybody knows that who's lived for any length of time on this earth. And the church needs men who not only desire to be elders, but men who are willing to accept the fact that being an elder is work. And the work of an elder doesn't begin once the man becomes an elder. It takes work to come to the place where one is qualified to be an elder. Paul warns that no man should be put into leadership without first being tested he specifically says this of deacons right later in this same chapter in verse 10 he says and let them that's the deacons also be tested first then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves there's that word blameless above reproach 
And he says in 1 Timothy 5.22, he says, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, speaking about ordaining elders. You know, Paul presents the rigors of spiritual leadership to Timothy in his instruction to, to him concerning those that he is to be training for ministry. And, and taking on elder leadership in a local church, as Paul says here, it, it calls for the, the sacrifice of a soldier, the diligence of an athlete, and the hard work of a farmer. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 2 with me. I'm going to read these six verses. Because you'll note in verse 2, he's, he's talking about those that, he, that Timothy is going to, to give this ministry to so that they will be able to teach others. So look, look at verse 1, 2 Timothy 2, chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And this is what it takes to be in spiritual leadership. I mean, obviously, these truths can be applied to any kind of spiritual leadership in a church. But he's specifically talking here about elders. You see, a prospective elder is going to be a man who's already ministering in the church to others. He's going to be a man who, who makes the sacrifices to be involved in ministry. He's going to be a man who fulfills his obligations to the ministry that he already has in the church. He's going to make choices and he's going to make his plans and organize his calendar so that he can fulfill the obligations that he's agreed to. The church doesn't need elders who aren't willing to fulfill their commitments. We don't even need members like that. Right? You see, elders must be spiritually minded men that the church can rely on. That they can have confidence in. I mentioned earlier that these qualifications that pertain to Christian character are qualifications that every Christian should strive for. The difference between elders and other Christians who are not elders is that those who are elders must meet these qualifications. Every one of us here today who, who knows Christ as Savior, we should be able to look at this list of 1 Timothy 2 and, and Titus 1, and we should be able to say, you know what, all of these qualifications for an elder, all of the, all of the ones that deal with character and conduct, these are things I should be pursuing as a Christian in my own life. It doesn't matter if you were saved a, a few months ago or if you've been a Christian for 50 years. Because the truth of the matter is you're never going to be perfect in those areas, right? Nobody is. And really, you, you look down through that list of qualifications and, and, and we see that no human being perfectly meets 
the qualifications. So, so how, how would a church go about determining if a man is qualified according to these qualities listed here in these two passages? Well, I think the answer really is that a man who is qualified to be an elder is a man whose trajectory in life is that he's pursuing in making significant progress in these qualities. There, there's nothing in his life that, that sticks out and, and says, this man is not qualified, and he's not qualified because of the pattern of his life. He's an angry man. He's totally undisciplined. He can't manage his own household. He can't even teach the scriptures to his five-year-old child. You know, John, in his first letter, as we, again, recently studied, he, he writes repeatedly about those who practice sin. He says, the one who practices sin doesn't know God. And, and I think that principle applies here. Any man who, who has these disqualifications, any man who practices these things and these lists that an elder should not practice, he's not qualified to be an elder. Until, unless and until he, he gets those things under control. Unless he matures to the place where these are not issues in his life. In also, on the other hand, you know, if a man is practicing the things in these lists that an elder should do, and he's not practicing those things that an elder shouldn't do, if that's not the trajectory of his life, then he may be a prospective elder. He's self-controlled. He's, he's just in his dealings with other people. He's, he's devout in his relationship with God. He's showing progress and maturing as a Christian. Because God doesn't demand perfection for an elder. If he did, all of us who are elders would need to resign immediately, right? I'd quit today. If the scripture said, Doug Payne, you have to be a perfect elder in order to be an elder. You have to, you have to perfectly fulfill all of these qualifications. Yeah, me and... Everyone else who has ever served as an elder would have to say, well, you know, that disqualifies me. But that's not what it's saying, right? That's not what the teaching is here. No, as I put on the screen here, God's not looking for perfect men to become elders. He's looking for qualified men. You know, some of you men in our church may have a desire to serve as an elder. Perhaps in a full-time capacity, going into the pastorate and, and becoming a, you know, a, on, a, on paid staff, or perhaps as an elder employed in the secular world, but working with other elders in the local church. Well, I, I would just admonish you to take heed to the scriptures we've looked at today. Honestly evaluate yourself. Then open yourself up to the evaluation of other godly Christians who will help you see the blind spots that don't allow you to see your own shortcomings. You want an honest evaluation from one perspective? Talk to your wife. She, she lives with you. She knows you better than anybody else. 
And you know, to go, to open yourself up to that, to go to another Christian brother or to go to your wife and say, huh, where do you see me? Uh, the pastor preached about today qualifications for an elder. Where, where do I rate on this? Uh, I mean, that, that, that is a very, very tall order and a very humbling thing to do. But it will reap long-term, even eternal benefits for the man who is willing to do that. The man who is willing to go to Jesus and deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow him. So I exhort you men in, in whom God is working regarding eldership, as far as serving as an elder in this church, I, I exhort you this morning to submit to the work of the Spirit of God in your life and to serve the Lord and his church as he has called you. Don't, don't grieve the Spirit of God. God raises up men to be elders. He raises them up to, to oversee and to shepherd his local congregations. And, and we trust God to do that here. And if you're one of the men that, that God is working in, don't, don't just keep going your own way. Submit to God. Submit to the Holy Spirit of God. Don't grieve him. Allow him to do the work in you that he desires to do. And for the rest of us as well, that we would become the mature believers that God wants us to be. Thank you, Lord, for your word. May you use it to accomplish your purpose in each life here today. May you raise up godly men to be elders for this assembly. In Jesus' name, amen.